Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Hello, welcome, and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think, we know who we are and who we might just become. I am Ravinda Taylor, standing in for Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open and my assistant Andrea is awaiting you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a great chat room. There's a great group of people. The conversation is always very lively, educational, inspirational, and enlightening. So do come join in. You may learn something new. That is provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. If you're in a place where you cannot um, get onto your computer, if you're driving or something like that, then you can always come back to the chat room later on because we often post up URLs and additional information there as well. So that is provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Now, in this week's spotlight, I would like to draw your attention to the nature of good old-fashioned respect. What is respect and how do we dishonor it without thinking? During last week's show, Eldon suggested that certain protocols in society were originally designed to promote order, sometimes even called the the so-called rank-and-file order. As such, it used to be customary to address your elders with their proper title and surname. This tradition, often still observed on university campuses or formal gatherings, but seldom in any other venue. Instead, somewhere along the line during the past 40 years or so, people began to call one another only by their first name. This can be as true for professors and doctors as for anyone else. And we often see this with media people when they interview a guest or when they are playing pundit on some issue. The purpose of titles is all about respect. You will not find a courtroom where an attorney uh, questions a witness even when the witness has a past criminal record as long as a proverbial arm, without referring to the witness by their title and surname. So why has it been abandoned in our pop culture? More importantly, does it matter? Or has it had any impact on our society? Let's do a little comparison before considering further the effect this sort of relaxation with, re- with regard to the principles of respect may have on our society. Think back to China and Mao Zedong. Mao led a revolution of the poor, the disenfranchised, the peasants' revolution. Since this was a cultural revolution, Mao theorized that there should be no rank difference between people, and he included this in his military. As such, a new soldier wore the same uniform as a general, and there were no rank insignias to differentiate the two. Communism became the rule, and the principles were essentially Marxist. The axiom that most are familiar with from Marxist doctrine is the statement, from each according to their abilities, to each according to their needs. The question then becomes, has our society moved in this same direction by relaxing the formalism associated with practices such as the inclusion of titles with surname? If you examine our society today, you quickly find that the notions of men like Emerson, who taught self-reliance, have not only become politically unpopular, but eroded and replaced with a social conscious that is insisting on entitlements. More and more people are of the mindset that they deserve everything, from free health care to a free education. Is this healthy for our society? The problem with free is that nothing is really free. Someone pays the bill. It's no longer a question of who deserves what according to their labors, but rather one of everyone deserves the same. This notion has repeatedly been demonstrated throughout history to lead to underperformance. As such, nations adopting this sort of policy are either currently experiencing economic difficulties 
and or they have abandoned the notion and moved towards a more capitalistic view such as Russia. The lessons of history are said to either be remembered or repeated. What will America do in this new century? Where will we be 50 years from now? We will decide that, and it's not an easy decision because we all want more. I, for one, would love everyone to have a top-notch healthcare and a free education. Our son just graduated from university, and his education cost us more than $150,000, and that's an outrage. He has two degrees and still needs a J-O-B. Clearly, there is something wrong with the system, but is free the way to go? Personally, as difficult as it seems, I think not. For me, I still think it comes down to balance. I'm currently reading Wild Swan by Jung Chang, and it's really easy to see the problems with communism and socialism. But when families can become bankrupt from medical bills or, you know, quality of life is severely impacted by student loans, etc., something is obviously wrong with our current system. What do you think? Okay, moving on. Every week we read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our show featured J.D. Mitschke and we spoke about his book Modern Day Liberalism, Exploring the Psychological Foundation of the Disorder. This show did spark a number of comments and letters. Jeremy wrote, what did you bring this guy to the show for? He is clearly a Texas Republican. Well, Jeremy, for the same reason Eldon brought Michael Shermer to Hay House Radio. If you can't listen to the other side, then we have lost an honest perspective. We certainly are not atheistic or agnostic, as Shermer, nor do we think liberalism is a disease. But we are willing to hear both sides of every argument because we assume that rational people exist on both sides and therefore one might discover something they don't know. Martha wrote, I found your show with Mr. Mitchkey refreshing. I might not agree with everything said in the show, but he made some valuable points. Thank you for airing both sides of this contentious issue. Louise wrote, So I take it you're kind of down on the secret. Will you tell us why? Simple, Louise. My years of education, training, and experience inform me that nothing happens until you make it happen. That requires action. Further, when someone like Bob Proctor st states that those who died in Sedona attracted it to themselves, just as did James Arthur Ray, I take deep exception. Everyone who is a victim of crime is not an attractor, but according to the law of attraction as presented in The Secret, they are. For me, that is nonsense. Richard remarked, Dang, that guy would do well to actually listen to Eldon's question. I wish he'd draw the connection to the emotional disharmony. What is that? I can definitely see how people are held hostage to guilt. That is a powerful social mechanism. CB added, Tricky interview. Every time Eldon tries to get to a point so we can move on, the guest wobbles away from it. I'm afraid I felt like the train never left the station for this interview. Okay, moving on. Tammy wrote, I love your show and your marvelous Inner Talk programs. Millie wrote, I've been playing your Inner Talk Ultra Success Power, Health, Wealth and the Fountain of Youth, all night for a few weeks, and it's really making a difference in my state of mind. I've been so burnt out at work, and this CD has renewed my energy and motivation. Brent wrote, I felt it was only right to send you a positive message. I thank God for Eldon Taylor and what he has done for me. I own several of his InnerTalk MP3s. I usually listen to the subliminal ones because I can listen to them passively during the day. I really appreciate someone like Eldon creating an alternative product like he has. I have spent many years believing in hypnosis and the power of the mind. I bought one of his Freedom from Alcohol programs. I have cut down my drinking by more than a half. I have also had much better success with my anxiety level after listening to another of his programs. Lastly, I have been listening to his increased energy level for the past few days and can already tell a difference. 
All right. That's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending us your comments to Eldon at eldentaylor.com or by joining us on Facebook. And I want to thank you all again for your letters and comments. We truly do appreciate you. Now to this week's show, Eye Disorder, Understanding Our Obsession with Technology and Overcoming Its Hold on Us. Think about that. Are you lost without your smartphone, tablet, computer, and so forth? Have we become not just somewhat dependent upon, but actually addicted to our modern technology? Enter today's guest, author of Eye Disorder, Larry Rosen. So let me tell you a little about today's guest. Dr. Larry Rosen is Professor Emeritus and past chair of the psychology department at California State University. He is a research psychologist with specialties in multitasking, social networking, generational differences, parenting, child and adolescent development, and educational psychology, and is recognized as an international expert in the psychology of technology. Over the past 30 plus years, Dr. Rosen and his colleagues have examined reactions to technology among more than 70,000 people in the United States and in 22 other countries. He has written seven books on the subject. Professor Rosen has been featured extensively in television, print, and radio media, and has been a commentator on The Daily Show, Good Morning America, NPR, and CNN. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Larry Rosen. Thank you for having me. We are thrilled to have you. Your book is absolutely fascinating, and I can't think of anything more important for us to discuss. Actually, there's going to be lots of stuff we could discuss, but this is something that affects everybody today, I think. If you heard the spotlight at the beginning, um, do you think it's disrespectful to use a smartphone, as many do, interrupting conversations, checking it at dinner, and things like that? I do think that that's showing our current obsession with technology. And part of what we are seeing in all of our work, and pretty much everybody else is seeing the same thing, is that we cannot seem to keep our hands off of our phone. If you look at young people, they hold it in their hand instead of putting it in a pocket or a purse. Uh, if you look at people at the dinner table, there's a phone every place. It's almost part of our normal place setting now. And people feel no problem with picking it up in the middle of a conversation. Um, we hear over and over from spouses that saying, oh, my spouse is on the phone at night when we're watching television or you know, should have time to talk. Kids complain about their parents. Parents complain about their kids. It's our new reality, essentially. It most certainly is. You're right. You can't go anywhere without seeing everyone with their phones. And even walking down the street, you'll see people with their phone in hand. Is there a proper protocol that has been devised somewhere that addresses the appropriate use of our cell phones? No. On some level, I think what we are is sort of in the midst of, of what I would call the wild, wild west in our our setting limits and boundaries around the use of technology. And and I've, I've spent most of my career, I've been teaching and doing research on this for more than 40 years, and one of the things that I have noticed, um, in particularly in the last 10 years, is that we have sort of taken on this role of anything that comes along, we suck into ourselves. We make part of ourselves. And essentially, I think the way that a lot of people feel about their technology is they are not different from their technology. They are their technology. And they cannot then disentangle it from, disentangle themselves from their technology, which explains why when you look at research, they, they show that most people, young and old, check their phone every 15 minutes or less. Um, they use their phone for many, many hours per day. We we had students in a class put an app on their phone for the entire semester and found that these students who are um, mostly uh, young adults, um, although in my university the, the age range is, is quite wide, but they're mostly young adults in their mid to late 20s, um, picked up their phone 
something on the order of 60-plus times a day for about a total of four hours, which means what they're doing... Yes, it does seem like an amazing amount of time. And that's just their phone. That's not counting a computer or a tablet or anything. But the interesting thing is they do it for about four minutes at a shot. So what we're finding is, is that the cause of this, or at least we think the cause of this, is that where when I grew up, when you grew up, our main focus of communication was either face-to-face or on the telephone, where we now have our main way of communicating um, through a variety of modalities. Uh, In any given moment, I would feel the need to check my phone for messages, check my text message app, to check Facebook, to check Instagram, to check Snapchat, to check my email, oh, my three email accounts. Uh, And so what has happened is we have had this blossoming in in ways that we can communicate with other people, which, by the way, is good. We do have ways to reach people and ways to connect, but the problem is we feel a need to keep up with this connection, and that's what causes us to keep picking up our phone and checking and picking up our phone and checking and picking up our phone and checking. And the bottom line is that is done out really probably out of a sense of anxiety. And um, in all of our research, we're finding that this sort of feeling of anxiety about not being connected to the world has skyrocketed in the last decade. And if you feel anxious about not being connected or not knowing what's going on, then the natural tendency is to want to know and to make it happen. And since your phone now carries every bit of your communication, it's just as easy to check on your phone. It most certainly is, and phones have so much more as well. It's not just the communication. I know if I'm waiting in line somewhere and I'm bored, I will pick up my phone for something to read. I've always been an obsessive reader, so anything in print in front of me, I'll start reading. Well, now I've always got the ability to have something to read. So, yeah, sometimes I'm picking up my phone to um, connect with people, and sometimes I'm reading Kindle on my phone. You know, it gives me something else to do. But you're right. You continue having that device in your hand, and then you continue reaching for it. And you brought up a very good point, by the way, when you talk about being bored. Um, Boredom is an interesting phenomenon in our life. What boredom means is that external stimulation stops, and you're forced to retreat into your brain. And literally, your brain changes when you're bored not changes in the sense of adding anything new or taking away something, but it changes in the areas of your brain that are activated. And interestingly enough, when you're bored, the areas of your brain that are activated are the same areas of your, of your brain that are activated when you have creative thoughts, when you're ruminating, when you are getting new ideas, when you are pondering the world. And these are things that we do not allow ourselves to do anymore. Um, the, our tolerance for boredom has reduced dramatically. And we see this um, primarily in our attention span, that we see that, that people's ability to focus on anything, whether it's a student reading material for a class, whether it's um, a husband and wife having a conversation with each other, whether it's somebody watching a television show, our attention span has dramatically shrunk over the last decade, decade and a half. And because our attention span has shrunk, we no longer have tolerance for simply being alone with our thoughts. And that's difficult because that's a part of what makes us human, is being able to be alone with our thoughts, to to think things through, to let ideas flow, and we're not willing to let us ourselves do that anymore. And that that worries me, because this is a very human quality that we're pushing to the side, in essence saying, what's in my phone is more important than what's in my brain. Wow, that's fascinating. See, for myself, um, I have a strong need to have alone time. So, you know, I have to have some alone time, some quiet time, some time for my thoughts. Um, For me, though, I will 
pick up my phone if I'm, you know, perhaps the family's watching TV at night and they're watching something that I'm not overly interested in. So I'm bored. So I pick up my phone in that particular instance and my family gets a little bit frustrated with me. They, they most <laughs> certainly do. I'm not surprised. And now, <laughs> and now um, take a look at a group of, say, 20-year-olds, 17-year-olds, 14-year-olds, 28-year-olds, 35-year-olds. What you will see is that they cannot keep their hands off their phones. Um, it has gotten so bad that young people, when they go out to dinner, often do what's called a cell phone stack. And they'll place all their phones in the middle of the table, and the first person to grab their phone has to pay the entire tab. Oh, Which that's is really an in interesting summer because that's a recognition that it's not okay to have dinner with someone and constantly check your phone, but it's also a recognition that some people maybe won't do it and they're going to pay the whole bill. I think what we have too is that need to respond immediately. You know, when I was a kid, we didn't have cell phones. You know, you had your phone at home. So if you're out on the road, then you had to wait till you got to a pay phone to make a call. And there wasn't the same sense of urgency. These days, if the phone rings, lots of people feel like they have to answer it immediately. doesn't matter where they are. If they're in line at the dry cleaners, in the doctor's office, you know, what makes that suddenly so important? Well, I think we have sort of backed ourselves into this slowly. And it's, it's funny that you mentioned that when the phone rings, we find that the phone is, is a poor name for the object that we carry in our pocket or purse yeah. all the time. It's not a phone. It's a computer. And we have to understand that it is a computer that holds essentially more than any computer we own. It holds the whole world, access to the world. And so part of what happens is we have all of these messages coming in, and when you get your phone, you get a new smartphone or whatever, you set it up with notifications. You can have special rings for different people. You can have special beeps for different people's text messages. You can have it vibrate when you get an email message. And so what happens is there's these constant alerts that are causing you to instinctively grab that phone and respond to the alert without thinking. That's half of the problem. The other half of the problem is even without alerts, we're finding that people are grabbing their phone and checking it. So I might get no buzz, no vibrate, no ding, no anything, but about every 15 minutes or so, I pick up my phone. Why do I do it? Well, to the best of our knowledge from all of the research we've been doing for the last four decades, or three and a half decades, the reason is it's anxiety. And the anxiety is an anxiety about feeling like you're going to miss out on something important. Now, that's an interesting phenomenon because what might you be missing out? When we ask people, they well, I might miss out on someone's Facebook post. And I might, if I'm talking to them and having a discussion, what I might say is, well, what would happen if you didn't check that post until an hour from now or two hours from now or tonight when you get home? Say, oh, well, people might be upset at me that I didn't like their posts immediately. And so part of it is we've built up this anxiety, this feeling of we will let people down if we don't acknowledge their communications rapidly. And you're right. In the old days, you would get a phone call on your phone at home, and if you weren't home, it would ring and ring and ring. When we got answer machines, the answer mm -hmm. machine would pick up, but you would have to actually physically get home listen to the messages, and decide, oh, it's too late to call them back, I'll call them tomorrow. The expectation from the other end was always, oh, I left a message, they'll get back to me when they have time. Now, the expectation is I left a message, they better get back to me right now. And when they don't, we start to attribute feelings to the other people. So, for example, we might say, well, he's not responding to my text message, he's angry at me. Or, he doesn't care about me because he didn't really like my post on Instagram. Um, that's dangerous, and that's at least half of what's driving us to this obsession with our phone. You know, what you're, what you're describing, I see time and time again. Uh, in our family, you know, we're... Uh, Eldon and I are pretty good. Our kids are like most kids, you know, so you go out to dinner and out comes the phone, and 
you know, you have to force them to put it down so you can have a conversation. Um, but it doesn't sound like the world is going in the right direction. It's, um, it's like we've got more information, but we don't have the ability to handle it correctly, don't have the ability to assimilate it correctly. Um, it's absolutely crazy. We're actually coming up to a hard break, so we're going to hold it right there and we'll pick this up as soon as we get back. Um, so we're listening, we're speaking with Professor Larry Rosen about his life and book, Eye Disorder, Understanding Our Obsession with Technology and Overcoming Its Hold on Us. To learn more about Professor Rosen and his work, visit his website at drlarryrosen.com. Okay, we have a video for you today featuring our guest, so now's a good time to join Andrea in the chat room. If you're listening on the dial, remember you can check the chat room out when you're next in front of your computer by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned, we'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Do you feel like you've become lost in the funhouse, only seeing the reflection of yourself, past, future, and present, but unable to find the real you? I invite you to step through the doorway and onto a pathway leading to understanding of your mind, your choices, and the influences that surround you. Read Eldon Taylor's New York Times bestselling book, Choices and Illusions. Now expanded, updated, and revised, it will provide you with real-life examples of how you can break free of your current perceptions and begin your journey to How High is Up. Get your copy today from all bookstores or online from Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Professor Larry Rosen about his life and book, Eye Disorder. To learn more about Professor Rosen and his work, visit his website at drlarryrosen.com. Now, we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some genuine significance to them. Music psychology is a new hobby of ours, and it's a field of research with practical relevance in many areas including investigations of human aptitude, skill, intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. All right, we just played some of the Eagles perform, per, some of the Eagles performing Hotel California. So, Professor Rosen, please tell us why is this music so important to you and how does it instruct us about who you are? You might also comment on your take of just what colitis might be from the lyrics on a dark desert highway, cool wind in my hair, warm smell of colitis rising up in the air. 
that's a very interesting question. I think of, of all the interviews I've ever done in my life, I've never been asked that question. So I'll <laughs> do my best to answer. Um, I, I'm a, a child of the 60s and grew up with groups like the Eagles. And I've always seemed to gravitate to songs that have beautiful melodies, interesting words, and some meaning. And I've spent a, a long time in my life um, driving and taking long trips. Um, as I was growing up, we took cross-country trips. And so I think part of it resonates with me in terms of feeling like you've had enough driving for the day, you need to find a place to, to relax, to crash, to, to re, rejuvenate yourself, and to move on to the next day. And so I think that that's what that music says to me. You know, I quite agree. That song is just special. I think there are there are certain songs out there that just appeal to everybody at some point. That one is just one of those, those special ones. Okay, before the break, uh, you know, we were talking about the the role boredom plays in uh, our addiction to technology and the anxieties that we feel uh, if we think we're missing out on information. Um, but I've got a, a bit of a different question when it comes to the boredom part of it, because this is something I have to confess I've experienced myself too. But there are times, you know, if I'm feeling overworked or overstressed, I can turn to my phone and to Facebook or, you know, whatever news apps I have on my phone just for something to read. And what I can find that I'll do is I'll carry on reading even though, I have no interest in what I'm reading whatsoever. If my Facebook wall is just boring, it's just, you know, it's the same old, same old, I'm not engaged in it, but I'm still reaching for it. Do you have any explanation for that? Because how can you cure boredom by making yourself more bored? Well, I, I think that's a very interesting question. I think that part of the reason that it is boring is because everybody reacts to social media differently. If you were to ask a 22-year-old, I have no idea how old you are, but but if you were to ask a, a little bit older old, than 22, <laughs> <laughs> as am I. Uh, <laughs> if you were to ask a 22-year-old or a 25-year-old or maybe even a 30-year-old what they get out of being on any social media platform, the answer would probably be they feel connected, and that's the key: is feeling connected. Um, it, if you're not using social media to feel connected, then it would make sense that it would be kind of boring. Um, I think that the first part of your question is interesting, though. When, when you're feeling overwhelmed, you can pull out your phone and, and feel less overwhelmed because there's something to do that's different from what you're doing. And I would argue that that would be great if we could all do that. But what happens is that many of us pull out our phone to give us something to do um, rather than arrest it from what we are doing. And, and all it does is it, of course, adds more on top of what you're already doing, already thinking, already feeling. And one of the things that happens, I mean, for example, for me, I'm not a, a huge Facebook fan. Um, I've been on Facebook for, you know, since the beginning, and I mostly use it to kind of keep up with my family. I hide people that I really am not interested in. Hmm. Um, but I do feel this draw, even though I only check it periodically, I do feel this draw when I see um, the app on my phone with a couple of, you know, with a, a blue background and the F and then maybe a red circle and a number there, that calls to me and it says, Facebook is waiting for you, you need to be here. Um, when I see my email with a number on there, your email is waiting for you. You need to be here. And what that does is it in, in terms of your body is it starts your brain releasing certain chemicals and chemicals like cortisol, norepinephrine, noradrenaline. These are all chemicals that, that combine to make your body have certain symptoms like sweaty palms, like your heart palpitates a little bit. Yeah. Like you feel maybe a little lightheaded, feel a little queasy. And we have learned from a very young age that what that means is anxiety. That means I'm anxious about something. And we have a natural drive to get rid of that anxiety. 
Well, the only if you're anxious about connecting and staying connected, the only way you can get rid of that anxiety is by connecting. And so it drives you to check Facebook, to check whatever your poison is, and that reduces the anxiety. But what we're finding in our work is that that only reduces the anxiety for a very short period of time. Um, then again, those chemicals start leaking into our brain and again telling us we need to check in. Uh, in, in one study, we actually took phones away from our college students, mm-hmm. and we would not let them have the phones for an hour and 10 minutes. And we would not let them do anything either, so we kind of induced that state of boredom in them. Um, 10 minutes in, we measured their anxiety, and then 20 minutes later, we measured it again, and 20 minutes later, we measured it again. So we measured it three times in about an hour, roughly, where we didn't allow them to do a thing and they couldn't hear their phone, they couldn't use their phone, they could do nothing. They had to sit. What we found is, is that those people who were we call light users of their cell phones, meaning they could take it or leave it, they could leave it at home and not get anxious about it, um, they showed no anxiety at all. And over the hour, their anxiety remained low and flat. Those who were heavy users of, of their smartphones, of technology, within 10 minutes, their anxiety was already accelerated, was already raised, and that anxiety kept increasing throughout the hour period. So by the end of the hour, they were highly anxious just because we wouldn't let them check in. That's really poignant. And what that suggests is, is that, that our behavior is being driven not by our mind, not by our need to look something up, our need to, to feel something, to see something. It's driven by this weird feeling of chemical imbalance that makes us anxious. And it was interesting when you when you, you mentioned the word addiction. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that what most of us feel is not an addiction. Um, if we feel an addiction, it's totally a different biochemical system in our, in our brain. It's combined with chemicals like dopamine, like serotonin. And what those chemicals do is they make us feel feelings of pleasure. So our body has that warm feeling, whatever uh-huh. it is we associate with feeling pleasure. Warm, we feel like smiling, we feel happy. And I don't think that most people get those kind of feelings of pleasure on their phone. If they do, then the reason they're picking it up all the time is because they're addicted. If they don't, the reason they're picking it up all the time is because they're anxious and trying to quell that anxiety. That's really interesting because I... That just feels totally correct to me. I can certainly r- relate to that difference. Um, but that does speak a great deal to, you know, the direction society is going in. I've got a question out of the chat room from Mark. He says, has our technology, like smartphones, caused young people to lose touch with concrete reality and live more in a virtual reality? I would say that, that there are many people, myself included, who are concerned about that. Um, what I'm more concerned about with our young people is youth is a time that you learn communication skills. Starting from birth, you learn to communicate based on the reactions you get from your mother, the reactions you get from your father. As you grow older, the reactions you get from siblings and then friends. And um, in order to to learn how to communicate, you have to pay attention to the entire person you're communicating with. It's not just their words, it's not just their tone of voice, it's their body language, it's their demeanor, it's even a a feeling that's given off of their body toward you. This is my concern, is that with young people, and particularly at its sort of impressionable ages in the preteen and early teen years, spending more time communicating electronically and less time with their face up, looking into other people's faces. I think what's going to start happening, and it already is happening, is that they are not as good at reading emotions on people's faces. So they mistake emotions. Um, There was a very interesting study done by researchers at at, uh, UCLA where they had um, young students, young people um, in their preteen years who went for a week to a science camp, and it happened to be that they were not allowed to bring their phones at all. And what they did is before they went to science camp, they showed them a series of pictures 
just part of people's faces from their eyebrows down to their chin. And they ask them, what emotion is this person feeling? And they, they assess the emotion. And then they also had a control group of students who weren't going to go to camp who were going to stay in school and use their phones normally like they do. Five days later, when they come back from camp, when the group came back from camp, they did exactly the same thing again. They saw the same pictures. They were asked the same questions. What emotions are these people feeling? They asked the control group the same thing also before they went to camp. And it turned out that the group that spent five days without their phones did much better at assessing emotions from facial expressions. The idea that the researchers put out was that if we can take your screens away from you for a short period of time, then we're forcing you to look people in the eye, and we're forcing you to have conversations, and we're forcing you to read people's faces. And in those cases, when you're wrong, you find out very quickly you're wrong. If you think somebody's face says they're mad at you, say, why are you mad at me? And they say, I'm not mad at you at all. Why did you get that idea? Well, I read it in your face. Well, you read it wrong. And this is the concern that we have that people are, that young people particularly, who have spent more time communicating electronically and less time face-to-face, are not learning those nuances of communication. And if you don't learn the nuances of communication, then all you've got left are the words, and words can be misinterpreted. They certainly can. I saw this uh, interesting video on Facebook. I confess, I look at Facebook. Um, but there was a really interesting video that I saw um, where they were talking about the imp- importance of speaking to people, you know, face-to-face as opposed to text messages. And they took a simple m- message that said um, something like, I did not say he stole your money. But by changing the word that was emphasized, you could change the meaning. So you went through this entire statement, I did not say, I did not say, I didn't say. You see what I mean? So you've got exactly the same information, but it changes drastically. But then I do have a follow-up question to you that I think is really pertinent here with... um. With, with computers and phones, you know, you also have FaceTime and Skype. Have you looked at, you know, how that impacts real interactions as opposed to, I mean, you see the person's face, mostly. So we did a study that we never published um, a long time ago, and, and I think it's relevant here. What we asked people is, how would you feel if someone said, and then fill in the blanks, we had some nice things like, I love you. I think you're great, positive kind of statements through three different modalities, face-to-face, email, and Skype or FaceTime or we used, in the, back, this was pre-Skype, so it was video conference, essentially, is the way we said it, or video chat. And what we fully expected is that they would feel the best when it was face-to-face. They would feel the second best when it was through video because, like you said, you can see people's faces. Uh-huh. And they would feel the worst through email. We were wrong. They felt the best face-to-face, second best through email, and less so through video. And we figured that the reason that they felt the least happy about the message through video was that video is kind of illusory. It does give you some cues that you can see from people's faces, but you're really missing the rest of their body and you're missing the rest of the cues. And also, you're missing out on that kind of feeling when you're face-to-face with someone that you can watch them. You can feel how they feel inside. You get that empathic feeling, and you can relate to them. Whereas with video chat, yes, you can see their faces, and you get some of those cues, but you don't get enough, and it leaves you wanting. And it makes you feel cut short. And... And when you're, when you don't have cues, what you do is you make assumptions. And we are terrible at making assumptions because almost always when we make assumptions, we make assumptions that are wrong. And when you start making assumptions, that changes the way you perceive their facial expression. So if you assume somebody's mad at you, then you're going to look at their face on Skype or FaceTime and say, oh, I can see that face shows that they're mad at me, even though it may have nothing to do with them being mad at you you're coloring your view of their expression by your assumption. 
Whereas if you saw their whole body, you'd see their body showed relaxation. There wasn't any tension. There wasn't any obvious anger there. So how did you misinterpret that? That's really interesting. You know, that is something I've intuited. You know, I've watched my boys on Skype and, you know, they have all of their interactions and I've always been aware that, no, it's not, it's not enough. There's something missing. You need to go out and be with your friends. Don't just, you know, chat with them on, on Skype. So you've certainly filled in some of the holes there for us. Um, how does technology use prior to bedtime impact sleep? Um, that's very interesting and a very hot question right now. Um, the, the simple answer is it destroys your sleep. The more complex answer is that when you use technology, um, say your smartphone or your, your tablet, you, you're holding it fairly close to your face, um, certainly within a foot of your face. But it turns out that, that the light-emitting diodes, the LEDs in our devices, give off a lot of light in the blue range, the blue part of the, of the light spectrum. And what blue light does, two things to our brain. One, I mean, imagine you wake up in the morning, you see the blue sky, what does it do? It wakes you up. The way it wakes you up is it gives you a little burst of cortisol, which interestingly enough in small amounts is alerting, in large amounts is highly anxiety-provoking. But the other thing blue light does is it retards the natural secretion in your brain of melatonin. And melatonin's job is to put you to sleep. So it's kind of like you have a double whammy. You're getting cortisol in your brain, which is an alerting chemical, alerting hormone, actually, and you're not getting melatonin. So what you're doing is keeping yourself awake. And most young people and, and not so young people use their phone or their tablets right up to bedtime. Mm-hmm. The recommendation in bed. <laughs> and in bed. And the recommendation from the National Sleep Foundation is no technology in the last hour before bed to allow that melatonin to help lull you into sleep. Um, Mayo Clinic has slightly different version, but it's similar. What it says is if you're going to use the technology, you need to hold it far away from your face, at least a foot, and, and if they recommend actually 14 inches, because at 14 inches, the blue light dissipates pretty quickly, and it doesn't really have much of an effect. So you can actually watch your television, because it's certainly more than 14 inches away, and not be getting the blue light emitted from there. That's fine. But if you're using your phone right up to sleep time, it's going to destroy your sleep. And it does two things when it destroys your sleep, by the way. It makes it difficult for you to fall asleep and difficult for the natural sleep cycles that happen at night to proceed. And part of what our natural sleep cycles do is they consolidate information that you learn during the day. They get rid of things that your brain thinks are inconsequential and you won't need so it doesn't get cluttered. And they all it also flushes out toxins that are left um, in your brain from your day of thinking. When we think, uh, molecules are, are used in our brain, and some of them just are free-floating around in our brain because they're waste products. You can kind of think of them as our brain's waste products. And at night, those the spinal fluid comes in and washes those away. But if we don't get a good night's sleep, which technology seems to be inhibiting, then that process doesn't happen, and it leaves a lot of interesting molecules in your brain, some of which are called amyloid betas, and interestingly enough, when you look in the brains of people who have Alzheimer's, they have a preponderance of amyloid betas in their brain. So what we're doing is hurting ourselves in so many ways. Um, I highly recommend that the hour before you go to sleep, you do something much more calming. And there are really three things that, that experts say you can do. One is read a book and try to read a paper book if you can. And try to read a book by someone that you know that you're familiar with because you don't have to learn new characters. You don't have to learn new plots. Your brain has already assimilated that. It knows it can read calmly. Second option is to watch television shows, surprisingly. Um, watch something that you're familiar with. Watch a rerun. Watch a show that you really love. Again, same reason. Your brain doesn't have to activate as much. You don't have to learn about who the characters are. You already know all the information. Your brain has that stored. So there's very little learning going on. And then the third option is to listen to music, but only very familiar music. So again, it doesn't take much effort in your brain. I always talk about 
to people, listen to music that you can hum in your sleep. So I, I actually will listen to things like Hotel California, for example. That's not a song uh-huh. I, can, I can hum in my sleep. And in fact, if I wake up in the middle of the night and feel like I can't go back to sleep, I will internally hum Hotel California to myself to calm my brain back down and let my brain fall back to sleep again. Well, that's that's fascinating. You know, I can just see all the parents out there taking down notes about this, going home and telling their kids, if you're going to have your phone in bed with you, you have to hold it at least 14 inches away. You know, all of those tips. I think that is uh, that is really important. You see, I've always, you know, I suppose I've put um, technology, as in iPhones and that stuff, in the same category as television, but what you're actually describing makes it... Um, pretty different from that right and and again what this is all about is allowing your brain to do what it naturally does in a good night's sleep and if you're not getting a good night's sleep then you're not functioning well now interestingly enough teenagers average about a little over six hours i hate to interrupt you professor rosen this is a fascinating interview but we are coming up to the end of our time you know perhaps we can uh talk you into coming back on our show sometime because I've got loads of questions here and we've barely touched the tip of it. So thank you for all of your work and your willingness to share it with us. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment and I want to thank everyone for joining us. I hope you've enjoyed the show and um, will join us again next week. Until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.